1: We are back with On Second Thought from GPB Virginia Prescott. Georgia is home to hundreds of thousands of military veterans and boasts tens of thousands of active duty and reserve personnel. And with those numbers often comes four letters, PTSD. Well, later in the show, we're going to talk about a play about how the effects of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, play out in one couple. Symptoms range from nightmares to those as severe as suicidal thoughts. But first, we've got Dave Phillips still with us. He covers military and veterans affairs for the New York Times. Liza Zwieback is with us in the studio to help us understand more about PTSD. She is Associate Clinical Director at the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. Hello, Liza. Hi. All right, Dave, I just want to, I know we have just a couple minutes with you, so I want to pick up on what we were talking about earlier. The Navy was sued last year over alleged discrimination against veterans with PTSD by the Naval Discharge Review Board. This board rejects nearly 85% of requests from upgraded benefits related Leading to PTSD. This is compared with 45% in the Army. So what came of this case?
2: <laughs> you got me. You got me on that one. So there's been a there's been a real problem with these boards in in looking at PTSD and and approving it. And I I think it underlies a bigger issue is that, that the military and the VA have a, a a real difficult time saying what is PTSD and what is not definitively yeah, like, and there are people patients who will downplay their symptoms and there are people who will exaggerate their symptoms for various reasons and so it leaves clinicians and the government who I, th- I think probably want to do a decent job of defining this kind of in the dark
1: Lisa Eliza's uh, uh, she's nodding her head here what do you want to say yeah I couldn't agree more
0: um, it is very hard I think to agree on uh, what is a PTSD diagnosis, kind of from person to person, and I think it's very often the case. Um, exact, exactly, excuse me, as being said, um, that there may be disagreement um, in whether a particular person has PTSD or does not.
1: We're going to pick up with Liza in just a minute, but uh, Dave, before you go, I want to ask about your reporting you've done on some innovative treatments for PTSD. Last year, in fact, reporting on a new study that shows that the street drug ecstasy could be a promising treatment for PTSD. What's in that study?
2: Uh, So, uh, first, let me just say, don't go out and try ecstasy and think that it's going to work.
1: Note and point taken. For
2: for years, there has been... uh, uh, interest in the idea of guided therapy, where oftentimes a uh, patient will have trouble accessing the uh, events, thinking about the events, Understanding the events that are causing trauma and so if you can flood their brain with with chemicals that enable trust and well-being Which ecstasy does then maybe you can allow them to see those those facts and those emotions and and try to process them And so there have been experiments. They're now in, I believe that there's sort of their Phase three trials for FDA approval to look at okay if we have therapists guiding people through this process can it help and what the data shows is it, it helps a lot. And, and so you would take two, maybe three doses of this over several months, uh, and that would be it. It's not like taking a, a pill every day. And through those therapy sessions would hopefully recognize and begin to process things as part of a larger psychotherapy process. Um, Regimen.
1: So, in conjunction with therapy, the psychiatrist and the MacArthur Genius grant winner, Jonathan Shea, he said that PTSD doesn't encompass all of the challenges active military and veterans face in their recovery from trauma. He calls it moral injury, and that is his real concern. Here he is.
3: If it gets bad enough, especially in moral injury, as I define it, betrayal of what's right by someone with legitimate authority in a high-stakes situation. Then the character begins to change. One's social and moral horizon shrinks, sometimes just to oneself, or it shrinks to a tiny little circle. It might be just one squad.
1: Dave, how mainstream is this notion of moral injury?
3: I think
2: a lot of veterans have heard about it, and a lot of civilians have not, you know. But the point is really important that we use in the civilian world PTSD as sort of catch-all for the things that might affect someone during war. And I think that there's all sorts of, of things. PTSD is a, a small part of it. Um, and and so treatment is probably much broader than just talking about PTSD. How do you give someone who's come back from combat uh, a meaningful life once they have you know, maybe seen and done things that they, they can't abide by? And I, I think that's what Jonathan and Shea has thought a lot about is, is we need to broaden how we think about this injury and how we're going to address it. And a lot of times that's a lot of stuff outside of the, the therapy office.
1: Dave Phillips, thank you so much for your time, and we'll be watching for your reporting on that case. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Dave Phillips, is New York Times National Correspondent covering military and veteran affairs. Lisa, so back to you. This idea of the moral injury, do you think that we do hear PTSD a lot and we hear about its symptoms we know a lot more about the brain now, but is that idea of the moral injury that it is something we flatten things out when we say this is PTSD?
0: Yeah. So the term moral injury actually has been catching on quite a lot um, in recent years. Um, And um, I think is very catchy for Uh, Lots of reasons. I think it captures a dimension that kind of, as you're saying, the sort of flat kind of abbreviation PTSD maybe doesn't seem to capture in people's minds. However, um, you know, you don't always get complete agreement on what moral injury is either. Right. And um, to me, moral injury, really, a lot of it amounts to guilt and shame over one's actions. Right. Um, In war. Um, also, in you know in civilian cases where people experience trauma and develop PTSD, um, they will also have kind of what, you know, what some people might consider moral injury in terms of you know, feeling guilt and shame, over having done something, over having you know not done something. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, that guilt and shame actually can be. Um, part of successful PTSD treatment. And so I'm a little bit less aligned with the idea that moral injury is something separate. Um, I think moral injury, you know, as, as I, I think people are conceptualizing it, has always been part of not only PTSD, but kind of PTSD treatment.
1: Mm-hmm. So guilt and shame are part of the effects of PTSD?
0: Yes, they are. They're actually symptoms of PTSD. So how do you treat that? That is a great question. Well, so, um, you know, I think particularly if we're talking about veterans, people who have um, acted in ways in the context of a, you know, of a war that don't necessarily comport with their own moral code, a lot of it comes down to contextualizing, right? And so this idea that um, we behave differently in a war zone Mm -hmm. than we do in our our normal lives, um, I'm I'm oversimplifying it, of course, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I think as the course of treatment unfolds, we kind of see... um, You know, our our patients sort of unpacking and exploring their memories of what happened and kind of being able to incorporate more of the context of what was going on and what actually may have contributed mm-hmm. to their acting in the way that they did. and a- rather As
1: Jonathan Shea said, you have legitimate authority, a high-stakes situation. Somebody's telling you this is okay. In fact, this is what you have to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly.
1: Well, what is going on? PTSD symptoms can include anxiety, nightmares, flashbacks. What triggers those mental and emotional reactions? What's happening inside of the brain?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, so um, so that we all respond as humans um, to threat in a particular way, um, which is to say that the amygdala in the brain is sort of the oversensitive alarm system, um, and then it and it is designed to react kind of quickly but not necessarily precisely. Is
1: that like the fight or flight? Yes, place? exactly,
0: exactly. And um, but then we also have the prefrontal cortex, which acts more slowly um, but more accurately, right, and is able to kind of jump in and mediate and interpret what's going on. And, and, you know, an example I would give is you're, you're walking along and you see a stick on the ground and it, for a second you say to yourself, it's a snake, and your body kind of reacts in a way uh, that looks like a fear response. And then, you know, the kind of the prefrontal cortex part of your brain jumps in and says, no, it's a stick, it's fine, carry on. Um, so that's the way that we are, you know, built to respond. Uh, the person with PTSD will have more activation in the amygdala, so studies have shown there's sort of more activation in the amygdala, the, the fight or flight um, piece. Um, and less activation or underactivation of the prefrontal cortex. And so the world kind of seems more dangerous mm-hmm. to the person with PTSD
1: than it might actually be. So they're seeing a lot more snakes, or that yes. stick stays a snake a lot longer. Oh,
0: that's, I, I might say both actually. I mm-hmm. would say there's just kind of like an overattunement to the presence of threat and danger in the world.
1: So you said that the body feels this. What mm-hmm. are the effects on the body of PTSD? Mm. Um,
0: there is, um, so, so I will say it's, you know, I, I myself am not an expert on the effects on the body. I'll just kind of talk a little bit basically about how um, the body is not meant to be constantly in fight or flight. You know, fight or flight is meant to be a really momentary kind of life-saving um, adaptive response. The person with PTSD spends more of their time in fight or flight than is optimal, right? And so a lot of stress hormones are flooding the body more than is ideal. And that, tends to have, I'm just going to speak broadly, kind of long-lasting effects um, on the organs, on the heart, so on and so forth, on just kind of overall um, adaptive functioning.
1: So we talked a little bit about Jonathan Chase, the idea of the moral injury. And part of the things that he talks about is that what is one of the ways to counter that is the support from peers. Let's just hear a little bit of that.
3: Credentialed mental health professionals like me, in my view, have no place in center stage. It's the veterans themselves healing each other that belong in center stage. We're stagehands. Get the lights on, sweep out the gum wrappers, count the chairs, make sure it's a safe and warm enough place.
1: Now, I'm not treating him as a clinician, but I'm wondering about is that something you abide by this idea of creating a sense of comfort, a sense of warmth? How do you how do you marry that kind of physical intimacy connection with the clinician's work?
0: Yeah, well, so so one thing I will say, um the program that I work in, Emory Healthcare Veterans Program, one of the things that I think we have found is that we are administering treatment in kind of a cohort. And so I'm working individually with one person, but that person's also going through treatment in a stepwise fashion alongside other vets um, who are also receiving treatment. And there, there are some groups um, that are part of our, our program. And I, I think there is a demonstrable effect of that support from their peers that they're getting that they wouldn't get, right? Just kind of coming to see a therapist once a week or something to that effect. So um, I, I'm not necessarily, I think... As on board with the idea that, you know, I'm a stagehand Mm -hmm. um, necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I think that both are important.
1: What would your role be in the whole production here?
0: You know, I think of myself in terms of the therapy that I do, I think I'm like a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. So I think, I'm, um, you know, looking at my my folks with PTSD um, who have kind of let their lives be very narrowed. You know, they've kind of isolated themselves. Um, you know, they tend to avoid reminders. They tend to avoid crowds. They tend to avoid all of these things that, f- that for most of us kind of are part of a full life. And so a lot of what my role is, is to help them actually get back into that full life by approaching the things that they've been avoiding.
1: Liza Zwiebach is with us. She's assistant associate clinical director at Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. So she's a lot of vets treating PTSD, first responders, military members. These are all people trained to be in these high stress environments. Uh, so, what are some of the misconceptions we have about PTSD? It's a term we hear a lot.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I heard—I think I heard you say before that um, there is a tendency to to kind of lump everything mm-hmm. um, into the the category, the umbrella of PTSD. That if somebody has a trauma history, then boom, they have PTSD. And that is not so. Uh, in fact, most people actually have a trauma history. Unfortunately, most people don't have PTSD. And so um, actually, resilience is the rule versus the exception. Um, And so for a minority of folks who do experience something traumatic in their lifetime, they do go on to experience PTSD, but it, it's not as though just by virtue of having experienced something traumatic, a person develops any kind of psychiatric condition.
1: hmm This is one of the interesting things to me. You just mentioned that, you know, a lot of people have trauma in their lives, and there's multi-generational trauma. You talked about how the brain operates in the amygdala with someone with PTSD. But I understand that that can actually be carried on, those traits from generation to generation. What do we know about that?
0: Yeah, and and I, I will say this, it's a, it's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, Um, but my understanding is that there's been a lot of really promising uh, research with animal models that suggest this kind of intergenerational transmission of the effects of trauma, which is really interesting. I think there's been some, um, some more theoretical work over the years. Um, um, kind of s- suggesting those effects in humans with Holocaust survivors and their children and successive generations, um, you know. But I think there's a
1: lot more to be
0: discovered there.
1: What is the most effective way to treat PTSD?
0: Oh, that's a great question. There are several very, very well-supported uh, methods for treating PTSD. So within the the kind of the category of psychotherapy alone, um, there are I would say three empirically Supported treatments, evidence based treatments. Um, and the one that I do the most of is called prolonged exposure therapy. And this is premised on the idea that, as I kind of mentioned before, people with PTSD tend to avoid things a lot. Mm-hmm. They, avoid, uh, they avoid things that remind them of a traumatic event, of their traumatic event, that is. They avoid things that feel unsafe, even though objectively they're not unsafe. Um, they avoid thinking and talking about their traumatic event from the past. And so what this avoidance does, unfortunately, even though it kind of works in the short term, really effectively it perpetuates the symptoms. It maintains them, never actually allows people to get back into their lives, as I was talking about before. And so prolonged exposure therapy really jumps off from that premise.
1: Okay. And then CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, do you work in that realm as well? Yes.
0: And prolonged exposure is sort of within that CBT umbrella.
1: Okay. And we mentioned, you know, actually Governor uh, Kemp, Brian Kemp in April signed the HOPE Act into law. This allows limited regulated production of medical cannabis oil. Some researchers think this drug and others like ecstasy and MDMA could help with PTSD. What does your research say?
0: Yeah. Um, so, so actually, the MDMA piece is something that looks really promising, and something that uh, my colleagues are starting to study. And I, I, I would definitely agree with the reporter who was speaking before about the way that this is is going to work. It's not a long term treatment. It's not, in other words, people are not on MDMA mm-hmm, for any kind of prolonged period. Um, but that being on a, a a dose of it one or two times kind of has this persistent effect. Um, Cannabis and cannabis oil, I think it's uh, a little less clear, kind of, uh, from my understanding, what the mechanisms would be. Um, one thing I will say, just with our patients, um, we actually prefer, and this gets a little controversial and a little difficult, we prefer that they not actually use Uh, cannabis because it gets in the way of learning these things that we need them to learn.
1: Liza Zwieback, thank you so much for speaking with us. I'm sorry you can't stick around to analyze the, the folks in the play that we're going to be speaking with in just a minute. Thank you for your time. Thank you. She's Associate Clinical Director at Emory Healthcare Veterans Program.